This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Today, we welcome Jane Mattis, who founded Single Mothers by Choice nearly 40 years ago after her own struggle to find such a resource. Now, 30,000 members strong, Jane will share how this organization has supported women who are thinking about or trying to have a child as a single mom or parenting as a single mom. We wanted to um, talk to you because you are the founder of Single Mothers by Choice, and I have a very dear friend who told me about your organization based on her positive experience in choosing to be a single mother by choice, and I've heard rave reviews, and I know you and I have talked before, but I thought it would be helpful to share with a broader audience the great things that this organization has done. So first, um, tell us about why you decided to start this organization many years ago. Originally, I didn't know anybody else who had had a child as an unmarried mother in their late 30s, (laughs) and so I really wanted to see if I could find some other women like me to get some support during the process. It was a little hard for me to talk to people about it since it was so new at that time, and I thought my married friends really wouldn't understand My unmarried friends certainly didn't understand, and it was just a difficult subject. So I did manage to find a few other women, and my other main reason was for my son, because I wanted him to grow up knowing that we were not the only family in the world that was just a mom and child family, as we called it. How old is your son now? 39. So... Given that this was nearly 40 years ago, um, was Mm -hmm. it challenging to put together in the beginnings? I know so much has changed over the past several decades. Was it challenging and and, um, how receptive were people? Well, originally it was not an organization and I didn't have any intention of an organization in mind. I just wanted to get together with some women and talk about, you know, what, what it's like, how they handle the unique challenges of being a single mother 24-7, you know. Um, So it just was a group of about six of us that decided we got together once and then we decided to get together once a month. And then the reason it became an organization was because somebody had a friend who was a reporter for a local newspaper here in New York, and her friend wrote a little article about us And then the New York Times picked it up and did a big article about us. That got syndicated all over the country, and we started getting mail. In those days, it was snail mail because it was 1981. (laughs) (laughs) And we were getting deluge with mail from this article from people all over the U.S. So we just started putting them together. Like we got three letters from Chicago. We 
put them in touch. We got four letters from Los Angeles. We put them, you know, and then we decided we had an organization on our hands that we really might as well get it organized. It was, it just evolved. And so clearly you established a need that started yes. out, It turns out a lot of others needed it as well. And once people realized this existed, they were like, I'm on board. That's amazing. Yes. And then the media coverage really helped because everybody was curious about it and, you know, how we weren't the typical, stereotypical, at least single teen mothers, nor were we the divorced mothers that everybody knew. We were some new kind of mothers. So tell us about what Single Mothers by Choice offers today to women. What are the different, like, for example, I know there's groups that people can join, community mm-hmm. that's involved. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the buckets of things that are um, there to support women. Right. It really hasn't changed that much from the original group of six people, in a sense, because some of them were already mothers. Some of them were thinking about becoming single mothers, and some of them were either trying to become mothers or were pregnant or adopting. So we were kind of a mixed group at the very beginning, and that's still our population. All those different stages along the way are in our membership, and we offer much more now than we used to. That part is different. We have local chapters all over the U.S. and Canada and even some in Europe and in um, Australia. And um, we have, in addition to the local chapters, a very, very strong, active online discussion forum, which covers every possible topic you could imagine and probably more. And that is very supportive and it's moderated somewhat so that things don't get insane as they sometimes can with online forums. And it's really become a kind of home for a lot of people, especially if there's no local chapter in their area where they can talk about anything and everything related to single motherhood and even things that are not so related to single motherhood. What would you say is the most surprising topic that women in the, without disclosing anything confidential, of course, what would Uh you think the most surprising topic or set of topics that um, these women discuss? I guess I've stopped being surprised. We have profound questions, you know, really profound, some um, serious issues with, you know, life and death and safety and developmental issues. I mean, it goes from the profound to the ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And when you say that there are the local chapters, do these women have an opportunity to meet face-to-face then? Exactly. That's the idea. If you're in an area where there are a few people who are members, we allow them to have access. It's their opt-in. You know, they can opt into this. It's not required. But if they've opted in, then their contact information is viewable by anyone else who wants to make contact with a local member. So, And sometimes there are actually local meetings, which are in some cities quite organized and large, and other cities are kind of tiny. But um, they can meet face-to-face. They can do formal meetings. Or they can just have their own little email group where they post, anybody want to go to the zoo next Thursday or Sunday or whatever, you know. So it can be very intimate or it can be quite highly organized and large. But the goal is for them to be able to find other women who are in the same 
situation. Is there a formal process to creating these chapters, so to speak, or do you find that it's much more of an organic thing where someone steps up and decides they want to organize something that's kind of becomes its own chapter or somewhere in between? Yeah, it's actually both. I mean, there are people who join and say, oh, there's nothing happening in my area. I'd be happy to be a contact if you can, you know, make me a contact person. Then maybe new people joining will find me and we'll get a chapter going. Or it can be a place where there is already a chapter. And sometimes, let's say, the chapter leader's child is kind of outgrowing the meetings and has their own world with their own friends. And, you know, they, they may sort of, want somebody else to replace them and become a new contact person for an established group that's already there. So it can happen in all sorts of ways. People, you know, just somehow find a way if they want to make a chapter or belong to a chapter or start even a new chapter, you know, in the same area. Sometimes they get too big. So we had two or three chapters. That makes sense. And if I'm not mistaken, I think I recall seeing that if they wanted to have professional support, they could as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You're talking about consultations with mm -hmm. me? Yeah. Oh, that's what Yeah. Okay. That is something that I offer separate from membership. And it's basically a consultation or two or three or however they want. It can be on the phone if they don't live in New York where I am, or it can be in person if they can come to my office. And they bring in their concerns. Often, you know, it's about should I do this, really, is what it boils down to. Can I do this? Should I do this? What do I have to think about to do this? It's, it's a way of processing the decision with somebody else as a sounding board. And that's a lot of what it really is about. And then once they're already mothers, then I get another group of people wanting consultations when the child starts asking about daddy. <laughs> that's a hot topic, as you can imagine. What would you say to women, I guess, in a general way around that probably very tough question? What advice? Right. It is a tough question if you haven't been preparing for it in a way, but if you have, what I actually suggest, and our members basically all follow this procedure, if you can call it that, is the child is entitled to know the truth, and that for the mom, it's a lot easier to talk about if she starts talking about it before the child understands words, meaning like when she's maybe five days old or 10 weeks old, or whenever the mother, you know, recovers <laughs> from the very beginning stages of new motherhood when they're in shock, we recommend that they start practicing having this conversation with this baby who, you know, doesn't know what you're saying. So you get a chance to practice and say it, and somehow <laughs> saying it in your head and saying it out loud always turns out to be very different. People say, oh, I'm sure I'll be able to tell them their story and it won't be a problem. And, they, you know, and sometimes they'll talk to me about it and they'll feel very prepared. And um, even with all that, at the moment that the child says, do I have a daddy or where is my daddy? The mother often freezes and, and goes blank. So the more, <laughs> the more preparation, the easier it is. But it's not easy, that first conversation and it has to be also age-appropriate. You know, 
what you say to a two-year-old is different from what you say to a five-year-old or a nine-year-old. So it, it's it's more complicated than it might sound, but in a way it's simple if you're comfortable with it. Would you say yeah. that once the women who may have had fear in the beginning around having that conversation, once they've done it, it's not as hard? Or what yeah. these women, okay. Yeah, in other words, if they're telling the baby who has no idea what they're talking about, they they get a chance to kind of think about the language that they want to use, the, the terminology, the phrasing, the the amount of information they want to give. And then there's, a, besides consulting with me, there's also a lot of discussion about this on our forum. And people will say, I just had the conversation, you know, <laughs> when the child actually asks and is, is able to understand what you're saying, then it's a real conversation. For example, my son asked me in the mailroom of my apartment building with four people in the room. What was that? Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I said, um, can we talk about that upstairs? <laughs> <laughs> How old was he? He was four. That's about my son's age. I could completely see that question being asked in the mailroom. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> so, so the the world has changed quite a bit in that, it, and maybe it's just you know living in New York City, and you could probably speak to this better since you have global exposure. But as you know, for example, ASRM, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, in 2012 stated that egg freezing is ethically permissible, and. Right you know, there's many reasons why a woman may choose to freeze her eggs. You know, she may want to delay childbirth. She hasn't met the right person. Mm -hmm. Maybe she's got cancer and, and just needs to preserve her fertility. So there's a lot of different reasons, but I can right. see that this gives women a lot more freedom and potential options for um, motherhood, which could lead to maybe even a larger population of single mothers, maybe not. I'm curious if you've seen any impact with the egg freezing being so available, maybe not cost-wise, but just from a logistical place, being much more yeah. available and how that is impacting, you know, the single mothers by choice. It certainly has had an impact. And I'm a big fan of egg freezing personally, because I think it takes off a great deal of pressure on the woman to hurry up and find the right man when maybe either she's not ready to find the right man or she hasn't been able to find the right man. So I do think it's a, it's kind of an insurance policy. It's not 100% guaranteed, but it's a lot more effective than it was when they first started doing it. The percentage of success is way, way better. So I, I do think it's a really wonderful option. And it, I mean, the only downside is that it, it may lead to women having babies really late and having a teenager when they're, you know, having um, retirement in the near future. I mean, it's, it's um, a question of how late is really too late. That's a, a moral question that I don't really want to get into. But some people think that they can now wait forever, you know, until 50, 55 and have a baby then. And that, you know, that has its challenges. It's, it's certainly a debatable question as to, you know, whether that's a good thing or not. 
to have a baby that late. But I think in the earlier 30s and 40s, it takes a lot of the stress out of a woman's life if she knows she has those eggs available. Absolutely. The freedom that women are getting over these past few decades, you know, not just health-related, but in so many other respects, it's, it's amazing. There's still a long ways to go, but it's, it's really nice to see the, the trends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that the women discuss a variety of things. And as you know, here at Fertility for Me, we're really focused on women's health, and right. the information gap, given the lack of funding for clinical trials to sufficiently answer some of these women's health-related questions. Yeah. And you and I should I assume that, yes, they do discuss it, because you mentioned every single topic is discussed. And if so, how much is it being discussed, and what are the main issues that you're seeing? Right. There is a whole section on our online discussion forum um, about health, our health, you know, women's health, and it's it pretty much covers the gamut. When you think about our population, the women are coming in from 30 to 45, roughly, and they're with us for almost 20 years in many cases. So we're covering the spectrum of things that happen to women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it's really... Um, I mean, it's a very active part of our forum, and it's a place to get not only advice from other women who've had similar health issues, but also just support. You know, when you first find out you have any kind of condition, it's very stressful. So it's it's both information and support for all kinds of um, conditions, from mild, you know, um, ear infection <laughs> to cancer and um, other really seriously disabling illnesses. That makes sense. So here at Fertility for Me, I think one of the things we're trying to solve for is given the lack of data to really support women in making decisions or even having effective conversations, we're crowdsourcing information from women who are facing various health questions and who've experienced the various health conditions like PCOS, endometriosis, you know, thyroid conditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our goal is to ask them questions to better understand what they've tried, what's worked, what doesn't, which type of doctor actually diagnosed them, how long it took to diagnose. Would you say that these are kind of the themes you also see in forums around the types of questions women have when they do get diagnosed with diseases like that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, this, the forum is international, so there isn't a lot of local doctor kind of discussion, right. but there is a lot of, you know, like somebody posted, anyone try acupuncture for migraines? That's, you know, like what other techniques have helped you with your migraines, that kind of question. Mm-hmm. Or something, something happened, a dramatic thing where somebody became deaf while they were pregnant. Oh, I mean, you know, Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about our population and the range of it and the, and the number of people, there is a lot of looking for advice on, as you said, what kind of doctor to go to 
what kind of procedures are available, you know, which procedures have what advantage and which procedures have what disadvantages. And, you know, a lot of, of it really is crowdsourcing. That's the perfect word for it, including preventive care, by the way. Yes, pre- prevention is definitely one of the keys, I think. And I'm curious what your, your thoughts are on this. Is It seems like, I don't know if it's the way women are, if it's the lack of information. I mean, for example, I didn't know about cervical fluid and its impact in being able to tell you various things about your body, including but not limited to when you're ovulating. I didn't mm-hmm. know I was 35 struggling with infertility. But yeah, I am. I can imagine that because of how we get informed, when we get informed, or the opposite of how much we don't get informed about, I think we think we just grin and bear it. Exactly. I mean, that's why I think this section of our forum on health is so active and so popular, because there's a wealth of information when you start sharing. And people, as you said, don't know these things. They just don't. And a lot of doctors don't into, don't even go into detail necessarily the way women would talk to other women. It's a different kind of conversation. Well, I hope that uh, fertility for me is able to make the the impact that it can, and I appreciate you know you're supporting what we're trying to do as well. And and I, I mm. think the organization you've built is incredible, and I love how you didn't start it with any specific intention <laughs> and. You know, things just happen for a reason, right? And it sounds like you were the person to to have um, become a single mother to make this into a global initiative and global company. I'm so glad I did because I just really wanted a little support from me and my son, and it turned out that a lot of other people needed it too. That's awesome. So what would you say to people who don't even know about your organization, because I know even on your website, you have buckets for, I'm thinking about it, I'm trying, I'm pregnant, I'm mothering. So you already have exactly. categories. But I, I guess maybe there's people who aren't aware. So what would you like to say to them? What message, whether regardless of the stage they're in, what do you think it's important for them to know besides yeah. become a part of the community? <laughs> yes, this is uh, something I wish I could put on billboards all over the country or all over the world. Because I think it's a really important thing to think about in your 20s. What if I'm not married and I'm turning 30? Do I want to think about having a child on my own? Or do I really strongly feel I only want to have a child with a partner? And the, the biggest regret that some of our members express is that they didn't join until they were either trying actively to become a mother or pregnant or mothers, that the people who are in the very early stages of thinking don't even realize, A, that there is a support forum for thinking, really, that's a big part of what we do, is help people think through this decision, and also that they have, and some people don't even think of it as an option, as hard as that is to believe these days, and, you know, it comes to them very late as an option. Whereas if you think about it, we're also getting the other side, which is nice, of women saying, I've been thinking about this since I was in my 20s, and I had made up my mind that if I hit 32 and I wasn't yet in a serious partner relationship, that I was going to think about doing this on my own. So some women have gotten the message, your fertility doesn't last forever, you have to make some decisions in your late 20s. 
at least think about it, you know? That's my big message. I love that. You know, it's, it's so wise, too. I mean, I think, um, you know, I was born in the 70s, and even I, and I don't know if it was because of where I grew up, um, or just, you know, the, the era in which I was born, but I remember in college, it was, I'm going to be married at 27 with three kids. And of course, yes, right. That was my plan. Like, I had a plan, and not uh-huh. only did, did I not find my husband until I was 35, the, uh-huh. we got back from our honeymoon, my fertility, uh, my OBGYN randomly did some tests on me, and she told me a month late after the honeymoon that I had to go to a fertility doctor. I'm like, okay, this was like the opposite of my plan. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) This was not your dream. No, no. no. But yeah, it is interesting that we're kind of on autopilot in in a lot of cases around this is how it's going to be. And you're right. We should instead ask the questions because they're very real and very important questions to be thinking. Yeah. And we feel wonderful when somebody comes in thinking and decides, no, this isn't for me, because that at least they've made an active decision. Right. Well, it has been a true pleasure to connect with you. I'm so honored that we've had the opportunity to talk and get to know each other. And I know we'll have many conversations moving forward. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks.